Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Jefferson Morley, who is a Washington author and investigative reporter. Over the last 35 years, he's served as Washington correspondent for The Nation and Salon and as editor and reporter at The Washington Post and WashingtonPost.com for 15 years. He is the author of three books of nonfiction history, The Ghost, a biography of legendary CIA spymaster James Jesus Angleton, Snowstorm in August, the untold tale of a white riot that swept Washington in 1835, and Our Man in Mexico, a biography of Wynn Scott, the CIA's top spy in Mexico in the 1960s. Morley is founder and editor of The Deep State, a news blog about secret intelligence agencies which averages 8,500 readers a month, and you can find it at deepstateblog.org. Jefferson Morley, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks for coming on. Now, last October, you wrote at deepstateblog.org an article called Is Israel Targeting Iran's Top General for Assassination? And then last month, one with the headline, After Mossad Targeted Soleimani, Trump Pulled the Trigger. So what was Israel's role here? Well, um, the Israelis had been concerned about Soleimani. I mean, the thing to understand about Soleimani is he had won three significant battles as a as a as a field commander in recent years, and these victories helped Iran and at the expense of Iran's rivals uh, in the region, Israel, and internationally, the United States. So, Soleimani was was targeted because of his his success, and the Israelis had had long contemplated um, assassinating him for exactly that reason. I picked up on October reports in the Israeli press, um, quoting Yossi Cohen, the head of Mossad, who speculated about um, assassinating Soleimani. Apparently, Soleimani had boasted in the Iranian media that the Israelis had tried to assassinate him in the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah and had failed. And so Cohen was responding to that, saying, well, he shouldn't speak too soon because you never know when he's going to make Mossad's prestigious list. That was Cohen's quote, Mossad's prestigious list of people to be assassinated. So knowing uh, Suleimani's success in the region, um, and it's worth pointing out exactly what he did. Um, First of all, um, Suleimani helped drive ISIS out of Iraq. Um, in 2014, when uh, the caliphate was proclaimed. In that war, it's worth noting, too, that Soleimani and the, and the Iranian forces fought side by side with the American forces um, against ISIS. So in that case, the United States and Iran made common cause against ISIS. Soleimani also led the Iranian intervention in the Syrian civil war, and which really tipped the difference in 2015 Assad was in danger of losing to the al-Qaeda factions uh, supported by uh, the Persian Gulf countries that were fighting his government. With the help of Russian air power and Iranian ground forces, um, they were able to turn the tide, and now uh, Assad's victory over, uh, over the Syrian rebels is all, is all but assured. So these were the things that were um, concerning the Israelis, and that's why they talked about it. So... 
when um, when uh, uh, Suleimani was visiting Baghdad on 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 January third, um, this idea that he uh, could be a target had been circulating in U.S. policymaking circles um, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a very fresh way, in a very recent way. Now, Suleimani had long been targeted, um, and in fact, in, in, in 2008, President Bush passed up the opportunity to assassinate him. Um, he was seen in Damascus with um, Iman Muganaya, who was a bomb maker who worked closely with Suleimani, and he was attending a meeting. The Israelis wanted to assassinate him, and when he walked into the meeting, into a meeting with Suleimani, the Israelis wanted to assassinate them both at the same time. President Bush decided not to do that. Um, he, he chose for uh, the, the the policy that had been recommended by the U.S., which was uh, it's not worth it to kill him. That the that the the backlash would be worse than whatever we would achieve by killing him. President Trump changed that calculus um, and decided that it was worth it to kill him. And incidentally, he was—he seems to have been supported in that judgment by CIA Director Gina Haspel, who apparently supported the action. So, in the the gist of my reporting was that uh, Trump had fulfilled something that the Israelis had always wanted to do but did not want to do independent of the United States. So Trump, this really uh, 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 fulfilled an Israeli policy objective without the political cost that Israel would have undertaken or suffered if they had assassinated him on their own, which is why they had never done it. So Trump really solidified that uh, relationship or, or, or you know, gave the Israelis something that they had long wanted with the assassination of Suleiman. Do we think, uh, does anyone know where, to what extent Israel specifically asked Trump to do that? Uh, you know, the the, um, the Israelis have been very ostentatious since then, saying, you know, we had nothing to do with it, you know, we didn't know. I mean, uh, we don't know that um, uh, if they if they um, directly advised it, but the, 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 the question had been on the, on the, on the, in front of U.S. policymakers, because Israel had already been attacking Iranian targets in Iraq as early as last September, and there were dozens of attacks on uh, what were called Iranian uh, weapons depots in Iraq. So the idea of attacking uh, the Iranian presence in Iraq was had been put on the policy agenda by the Israelis already in, earlier in the fall. And, and Israel has assassinated Iranians in the past, and you refer to Mossad as something like the, the premier assassination uh, organization in the world. Well, um, I mean, almost alone among the world's intelligence agencies, the Mossad has a declared policy of assassination. How many they've carried out varies depending on, you know, who, who's, who's making the figures. The low figure that I've seen cited by Yossi Melman, a, a reliable Israeli journalist, is 70 to 80 over the last 50 years. Other Israeli writers have said that the, the true number is like seven or 800. So I guess it depends on what you mean by assassination and high level. But they have a policy, and they say, we will go out and assassinate our enemies, um, uh, even, at, even in defiance of international law. And there's a one of the reasons why U.S. policymakers argued against assassinating Soleimani 
was precisely because as a government figure, um, it would be it would be illegal under international law to assassinate him. And CIA Director John Brennan has has made that argument again that that you know after the after this assassination that the assassination of Soleimani was illegal under international law. The Israelis don't care about that. The United States sometimes does, and now under Trump doesn't seem to. Um, that's you know that's the way the uh, that's the way the Israelis operate, and so. This was a manifestation of that, you know, standing policy, and or an endorsement of that standing policy of the Israelis. And when the United States, under Barack Obama, used missiles from drones to murder all kinds of people in all kinds of countries, uh, exactly equally illegal, no? Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, depending on the on the specifics of, you know, was somebody an armed combatant, uh, you know? Uh, I mean, the thing about those those drone attacks that that Obama authorized um, in far larger numbers than President Bush ever authorized, it's worth noting, um, is, you know, we don't know because the whole decision making uh, apparatus is completely secret. So we don't know whether these people who were assassinated were actually combatants and therefore this was legal under the laws of war. I mean, it, they might have been, but it's quite possible that they weren't. We just don't know because the whole process is, is, is secret. Well, many we know are children. Many we know who, in certain cases who could have been easily arrested and the preference was to blow them up. Uh, and we had we had liberal law professors going into Congress and testifying, this is murder unless it's part of a war. If it's part of a war, then it's perfectly fine, but we can't know if it's part of a war because Obama has a memo he won't show us that tells us whether it's part of a war or not. When, when Soleimani was killed, this didn't seem to even be an issue anymore. If, if, if it starts a war, that makes it worse. But we just don't care whether it's part of a war or not. Well, the, the, uh, the drone program has really um, uh, normalized the practice of, of targeted assassination and really rendered there is a standing executive order that the United States uh, will not engage in political assassination issued by President Ford after the, uh, in the 1970s. And, you know, we see now that, that that executive order is essentially defunct and that the United States will resort to assassination when senior policymakers want to, regardless of what U.S. or international law says. We are in a new era in that regard. I think that's exactly right. We're speaking with Jefferson Morley, uh, whose blog is at deepstateblog.org. Jeff, I want to ask about another topic that's, of course, been in the news quite a lot uh, lately, but you have an interesting take on it. You wrote an article recently called The Weakest Link, Impeachment and National Security. What did you make of the Trump impeachment and, and trial with regard to national security? Well... You know, our national security figures in Article One in the abuse of power charge, and the abuse of power um, uh, that, that Trump's abuse of power threatened the national security of the United States in two ways: one, by withholding military appropriated military assistance from the Ukraine government uh, in uh, uh, that was supposed to be provided, and two, soliciting a foreign government. Uh, interference in in our election. That, on the first point um, about uh, the military, the aid, provision of military aid to Ukraine, 
The important thing to remember there is President Obama, Obama always resisted providing military aid to Ukraine. And he, and he resisted on, 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 on these grounds. He said, um, if we provide military assistance to Ukraine to fight Russia, which had seized Crimea, the easternmost part of Ukraine in 2014, and launched a proxy war in, 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 the, in the eastern part of the country, um, if we armed Ukraine, Russia, with, which has a long border with Ukraine and lots of military forces on that border, would always be willing and able to escalate more than the United States. So no matter how much arms we gave to Ukraine, Russia could arm themselves even more and overwhelm. So Obama said, let's not even go there. Let's not make this conflict more bloody. We need to encourage these two countries to enter into a peace agreement and come to their own agreement. Obama held the line on that against the advice of her of his very hawkish advisors, including Hillary Clinton, who wanted to provide the aid. So Trump, uh, before the election, Trump took the identical position as Obama. We should not provide military assistance. And famously, he insisted on changing the Republican Party platform in 2016. It was the only thing on which Donald Trump and Barack Obama agreed. Literally, the only thing they ever agreed on was, at least in 2016, was we should not provide military aid to Ukraine. When Trump took office, he immediately switched sides, if only to distinguish himself from Obama, and he supported the hawkish position, we should provide the military aid. And so in the military aid that was voted for by Congress in 2018 and 2019 was the provision of a more lethal set of weapons than had previously been provided, most notably uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles. This is a shoulder-launched anti-tank missile. The Russians have lots of tanks. Uh, on the border of Ukraine, this would theoretically be a deterrent to an invasion. So uh, that was the aid that Trump withheld. And so the Democrats in the, in, the, in the House managers made the case that Trump had endangered the United States by, by blocking this aid, that we gave the aid to, to Ukraine so that we didn't have to, we could fight the Russians over there and not fight them here. Right. Um, a, a famous line that echoed exactly what how President Bush justified the invasion of Iraq. We'll fight the terrorists there so we don't have to fight it here. It was a completely unconvincing line. Um, it wasn't really a major thrust of the argument as it, as it was argued. Um, it was The Republicans pretty much ignored it, except to note, and, and the Deputy White House Counsel Mike, per, Mike per, per, Perpura made the point very effectively that everybody agreed, but pre, Trump's policy was was more aggressive towards Ukraine than Obama, and all of the favorite witnesses of the of, of the House managers on the obstruction of justice charge and the abuse of power charge, Ambassador Yovanovitch um, uh, and uh, um, Fiona Hill and uh, the third one, blanking on his name, all said, "Oh, the, Trump's policy was a big improvement over Obama's." Well. There went their point. I mean, they had put this point forward without really thinking about it. It was kind of a reflexive national security argument that that really failed. And I mean, I think that I think that there was an abuse of power, and I think there was an obstruction of justice. But including that national security item on really on Ukraine, which is really a, a tertiary, it's a third level of you know national security concern for the United States. Right. The first level is defending the country itself and the people of the country. 
second level is defending our allies and our interests in the world, okay? We are not allies with Ukraine. We don't have significant interest there. It's a, you know, it's a nice thing to support the, the Ukrainians against the Russians. The Russians' intentions are not good. They're, they're, they don't play by international law rules. But it's not a major national security concern. And to raise it, well, I think, was completely ineffective. I mean, I, I think it's been shown that it was completely ineffective. It didn't sway anybody. And so, and I think that it was, there was this kind of reflexive embrace of, you know, if we cry national security, that will bring, that will bring Republicans around to us. Well, you know, that's a very defunct idea in, in this day and age. Republicans don't care about national security. If they care about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, they take Russia's side. Trump certainly takes Russia's side. It wasn't an argument. And, and Democratic voters don't think that Ukraine was so important. I mean, what, what, what Democratic voters saying, oh, you know, I want, I want my next president to be tougher on Ukraine than Trump. Nobody, but nobody is making that argument. So this putting, emphasizing this point in the impeachment, I think, showed the extent to which Democrats in Washington are trying to make allies with the national security agencies, the intelligence agencies, in the fight against Trump, which I think is understandable. The, the president's out of control. Um, he doesn't respond to, uh, to the rule of law. But to base an argument against him on he threatens national security in Ukraine is completely weak and unconvincing. So I think they would have been better off leaving it out. Well, I agree on that, and you make a number of excellent points. Uh, I think a big part of the problem uh, is the demonization of Russia that has been such a central part of all of the rhetoric. Uh, and, and on that point, I would question uh, what you said a few minutes back, Jeff, which is that, that Russia seized Crimea and launched a proxy war, because that seems to me to erase the actions of the deep state, right? What happened? There was a coup facilitated by the United States states, the people of Crimea, uh, afraid for their own safety in the new Ukraine, voted uh, with a, a total casualty count of zero to rejoin Russia. Why is that always called a seizure, uh, and why is Russia always accused of, of starting it? Well, it was a change of European borders um, uh, made under duress. Uh, at the, you know, at the at the at the request of the Kremlin, uh, the deep state did not put uh, you know uh, non-uniformed Russian proxy forces into eastern Ukraine that have killed, resulting in a war that's killed thirteen thousand people. That wasn't the American deep state. That was the Russian security forces feeling impinged upon by the possibility of a pro-Western government in Ukraine. Right. I'm talking that, about I mean, the earlier coup. In Kiev, and I'm talking about the the vote in Crimea that's always characterized I mean, the, 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 as a seizure of Crimea. Okay, well, uh, I think that Crimea became was absorbed into Russia uh, uh, as a response to the events in Ukraine. Now, was it a coup or not? I I, I try and stay away from that language a little bit because the Ukraine reformers. Uh, the Ukraine political forces didn't describe the overthrow of an oligarchic pro-Russian regime as a coup. They characterized it as a democratic revolution. Now, were U.S. intelligence, Western intelligence services supporting those forces? Probably, yeah. 
I mean, but the, the, the thing to understand is Ukraine is a very weakly governed country. It has a, a sluggish, non-dynamic economy based in extraction and agriculture. The western part of the country is oriented towards Europe. The eastern part of the country is more oriented towards Russia. Um, it's a very weak state. Um, and so the idea that, that um, uh, uh, you know, the United States controls it, I, I, I just don't buy it. Ukraine is governed by shifting coalitions of oligarchs. Some of those oligarchs look to, to Moscow for support. Some of them look to the West for support. Most of them play both ends against the middle. Okay, So what is the United States policy should be in that situation? I mean, I think it should be that we support people who are, you know, want to democratize Ukraine and strengthen its institutions and 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 frankly and and, and join the European Union and 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 then become more like a European country. Now that was the that was the goal of the uh, uh, the Ukraine color revolutions, which you know were not entirely successful. They have a new uh, president who's a reformist running for on a, a on a pro-European platform, but he's indebted to an oligarch himself, and so you know. My point is, this is not a, a, a crucial matter for the United States. And to pretend that it was in the midst of a very serious impeachment proceeding, I think detracted from a strong case against the president. Well, I completely agree with that. Uh, and I agree that the United States doesn't control Ukraine, which is why I never said it did. Uh, and I do think there are a lot of uh, events around the world where you can say were U.S. agencies involved, probably. But in the case of what happened, uh, coup or democratic revolution uh, in Ukraine six years ago or so, uh, when you have recorded phone calls leaked of State Department officials plotting and who they want to take charge and so forth, it's it's one of those rare cases, I would think, where you, where you don't have to say probably. But... Um, Anyway, we're speaking with Jefferson Morley. Uh, the website is deepstateblog.org. I wanted to ask about uh, other articles that you've you've written or or summarized and linked to. Uh, and one that interested me a lot was called "Foreign Governments Are Greasing U.S. Think Tank Experts with Millions." Uh, and this is not just yeah yeah um, a fascinating study put out by the. Uh uh, by the Center for International Policy, a think tank here in Washington, um, that does high-quality work. And they tracked all foreign contributions to U.S.-based think tanks. And it's quite extraordinary how much money is being pumped into these organizations. And it's important to understand how those organizations kind of seed the policy and the media discussion of major foreign policy issues all the time. It's because these become the uh, the best informed um, uh, places for information. So, if you're a congressman or you know a senator, and you want to understand well, you know what's going on in Saudi Arabia or uh, Ukraine. You know, you go to think tanks, and these think tanks provide you with answers. What the study shows is foreign governments are funding those think tanks so that they get the answers that they want injected into Washington's political discourse. And so as a way of for foreign government and foreign intelligence agencies to influence Washington, funding of think tanks is actually a very important function that goes on. And this study really 
revealed and documented in very strong terms, you know, very credible terms, just how, just how much of that is going on. And, and these are not just any governments, some of the most oppressive governments in the world, governments like United Arab Emirates, for example, right? Uh, w- w- yes, the, uh, I mean, the, the Gulf countries, the UAE and, and the Saudis, um, you know, have put hundreds of millions of dollars into these uh, think tanks. Uh, Turkey puts a lot of money into the Atlantic Council. Um, uh, Israel puts, uh, or supporters of Israel have put, tons of money into the Brookings Institution. So, you know, it, it, it's very pervasive. And, um, yeah, and, and especially, you know, and it's true, you know, Norway uh, supports, uh, you know, international assistance and all that. Some of it, I would say, is benign, right, where countries are open about, uh, you know, what they're funding. But these authoritarian governments, for sure, you know, they have covert agendas that they're funding in Washington. I've been looking recently at, uh, you know, Freedom House, which is a, basically a U.S. government-funded uh, operation, very U.S. biased in some ways, puts out a list of, you know, the, the, the governments that are free and that are not free and that are in between. And, and if you look at the 50 not-free governments, almost all of them, the United States sells weapons to, gives military training to, and actually funds their military uh, in some ways. And, uh, and I, I wonder why, yeah, and then, how does right, this happen? And then, and, then, and, then, and then these governments put money into our intellectual ecosystem here to justify the continuation of USA. So the, the study shows the, 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 the complete loop, right. you know, we, pro- we provide this military assistance, this support for these authoritarian governments, and they provide the money that creates the arguments in favor of it. And so that's a, a loop of influence that we, that we see, you know, running very strongly in Washington. It's it's quite disturbing. Uh, excellent link you can go and find at deepstateblog.org. Another link that I that I found very interesting recently on your blog is about conspiracy theories in the United States and in Russia about each other. Can you yeah. can you explain? We look for explanations of, of of what we don't understand and what we want to control. I think that that's what drives people's thirst for conspiracy theories is to explain something where the evidence is shocking or puzzling or missing. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, and how do we rationalize it? Well, you know, other countries do the same about us. And so there was a, 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 a an interesting um, uh, podcast in Russia from an uh, independent Russian news site that I follow, Medusa, um, in which they examine those. And you know, from the from the from the Russian point of view, um, uh, while uh, not discounting the um, uh, uh, the nefarious character of the Russian government, um, a lot of the Russian observers found that we attributed too much power or uh, uh, or too much uh, genius to uh, Putin. That our conspiracy theories were um, uh, demonizing um, people who probably didn't didn't deserve it. Um, so, yeah. you know, so I just thought it was interesting that, that, that to see how, you know, we are not alone in our conspiratorial obsessions. And, you know, when we hold them up to the light in another country, other people may think, you know, and they're, the Russians are better informed about Russia than we are, you know, 
they're like, what are you talking about? That doesn't match our experience at all, you know, or, or not very much. Right. And so that's, um, you know, it's a kind of, it's kind of a reality check. Wonderful stuff. I wish we could go on, but uh, the clock is run out. The website <laughs> is deepstateblog.org, uh, run by Jefferson Morley. Jeff, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.